touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say our love is a flame, not an amber. Say it's me that you want to... Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the A-Slut Podcast. Obviously, standing for advice, sex, love, understanding, and trust. If you do want to get hold of the show, you can find us on the social medias, the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at the A-Slut Podcast. And you can also email into the show at the A-Slut Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. I love hearing what you think of the episodes. Even when you disagree with what I'm saying as well, I love talking about that and having those conversations around everything that we do. If there's something that you'd like me to talk about, that's another reason to get in touch with me and to and to talk about that side of things as well. So, yeah, get a hold of me. Let's chat. Let's get on it. I do need to thank you all this week for joining me, especially after not being able to put out an episode last week. Like I said, life got a little bit in the way, and I just I ran out of time, people. I'm sorry. I just did not have the time um, to sit down and record an episode. I did not have a spare hour of the week. Um, a lot of you know now that I work very large hours, and that sort of continued on. So thank you, though, for joining me this week and having listened to this episode today. It's going to be a bit of a heavier one, and it's kind of because of how I've been feeling this last couple of weeks as well. I did have another episode in mind, but the way that I've been going through this sort of last week especially, maybe even two, um, it's a lot more pertinent in my life at the moment. We're going to be looking at, well, as you'll see in the title, um, correlations between BDSM or kinky stuff or whatever you want to call it, whatever space you want to put that into and mental health and how the two uh, can be somewhat intertwined and what negative effects or positive effects BDSM has on mental health um, bit of a spot alert it's mostly good things but we'll go through sort of findings that have been done by that we'll talk a little bit about how um, kinky people are seen even by industry professionals when it comes to getting treated for um, for mental health concerns and reasons. And we'll go through a fair bit of that as well. And, yeah, that's, that's sort of how the episode's going to go down. Um, and like I said, this is because of how I've been feeling this week. I have been having a bit of a... A bit of an episode where I've not been feeling my greatest um, recently. Uh, it could be down to being overworked. It I've just had my my roommate move out of my house as well, so I'm living here alone. Which I'm a very social person, um, so I'm finding that a little bit difficult as well. And yeah, just in general, going through a tough time. Um, not really giving enough credit to myself, and and sort of, yeah, going from that. So, um, if you are feeling down, I, I really do suggest to people to talk about it. Um, I, I've talked to a few friends about how I've been feeling, and it, it does help, guys. It really, really does help. I really hope that you, um, if you're going through something, that you will get out there and 
and just have a chat to someone. I had a chat to somebody that I've just started playing with in the King scene. Um, and they've been a close friend of mine for, or a friend of mine for a fair while. And we sort of um, talked about how we'd like to get into something like just as a as a sort of play partner situation, I guess for lack of a better term. And we sort of went from there. We had our first play session last week. Uh, it was only a light one just to sort of figure out what the boundaries were and all that sort of thing and what kind of level both parties were at and whatnot. And that was that was really, really fun as well. But as this week went on, I felt myself sort of getting quite down. And, and it may have something to do with top drop, but knowing myself... I only really get top drop during very heavy scenes and because this was just the first one where it was kind of light and kind of playful and fun I don't believe it's that of course there's always a possibility that it is there's no two ways about that there's definitely a possibility that it is but in my opinion from myself I don't think it's that I think it's something a little bit different but I'm yet to figure that out but yeah so Let's move on to something a little bit more positive. Um, like I said, I had that play session, which was really, really cool, guys. It's It's been a while since I've had a real, true, full-on play session, and it was really, really fun. Uh, the partner I was with was, well, we're not partners, play partner, that I was playing with um, is still quite new to everything. And I'm, let's say I've been around the block a time or two. Um, so I went around with a whole bunch of toys and I tried a few things and she enjoyed it all and it was really fun and really lovely and quite exciting for me. Um, I don't, like I said before, I don't really, I don't often have play partners or anyone close enough that I trust that also trusts me with this sort of thing. So I was really excited when I found this wonderful person who's who has been on this show before. Um, I'll let you people guess who that might be. Um, but yeah, really, really cool to get that up off the ground and start running. It felt really, really good to be back in the swing of things. <laughs> swing, because I was swinging things. <laughs> God, I'm lame. Um, how do you people listen to this shit? <laughs> uh, but yeah. So that's been really, really cool. Uh, like I said, my flat, my flatmate, roommate has moved out, so I'm in a big 300-bedroom, 300-bedroom, uh, Jesus, a three-bedroom place with just me and the dog, which is interesting. It's probably only the second time in my life where I've lived alone, and it wasn't a good time the first time, so I'm hoping I'm going to be a wee bit stronger coming through this one. Um, but I might be moving, so we'll see what happens there. Apart from that, not a lot going on my going on in my life at the moment, team. It's just going through. Um, all the qu the questions that I had through this week weren't uh, were asked not to be on air. It was just straight questions to me, so that's absolutely fine. So no questions this week, I'm afraid. But I'm hoping that it will start coming back through again next week, and we can move on from that. But uh, for now. Let's really get into the the crux of this episode. Thanks. Enjoy. 
going to be one of those sexy sexy podcasts i'm afraid today it's something that is near and dear to my heart and something that needs to be talked about a little more often um and i'm going to include parts of kink that i've already talked about in this as well in my kink 101 episode uh because there is parts of that with top drop and sub drop that do very much Coincide, I guess, for lack of a better term, with mental health in the kink community and in the kink scene itself. So we will be talking a fair bit about that, and I'll be going through a number of different articles and things that I've read through uh, while researching a fair bit of this as well. Now, the first one I've come across is, the, the question is posed, I guess, is why does the society act like BDSM is completely normal and there's nothing wrong with it. Sexual sadomasochism is a paraphilic disorder as classified by DSM-4. So why is it so widely accepted? Now the, the first thing that we need to talk about in this is what DSM-4 is. So for those in America you'll you'll definitely know well, well it's Basic, it's an American um, psychiatric association, and they put out uh, a manual, I guess, uh, called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and that's what the DSM is. And then you have the four part, which is obviously the fourth edition. There's since been a fifth edition, which does not include um, does not include kink to be or sadomasochistic, sadomasochistic activities as being a paraphilic disorder any longer but obviously for the longest time it has been so we're going to talk about it and god damn we will definitely talk about it because it's 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 a huge huge thing so there's definitely a for lack of a better better term a stigma from the general population around kink and BDSM and practitioners of these sorts of actions. Uh, the thought is that they are that they do have a disease, that they're psychiatric, they're, you know, weird, they're off, they're not natural. There's there's so many different things that you could that you could say about this, I guess. But I think people who are in the scene don't see this, or don't think this anywhere near as much. And obviously, it's one of those things where you have a fear of the unknown, I guess, right? 
So you're not you see these people doing these things or hearing about people doing these things and you just think that's really really weird who the hell would want to get hit with a uh, get whipped for fun and for sexual pleasure you can kind of understand why people are a wee bit concerned for lack of a better term about it and why they would think the things that they do so as as we start moving through this there's, there has been, especially recently, especially since the likes of Fifty Shades of Grey and whatnot have come out, there's been more studies into this, which is great for me. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Oh, and just on a side note, people who are LGBT uh, also in, in the DSM-4. So just to let you know how a little behind that one was as well. It's not considered a sexual disorder, but it is psychopathically classified as one but there you go um, so yeah there's been a fair few uh, studies and whatnot on this so the psychologist Frank uh, Joe sorry not Frank Franklin Mers also linked to it but uh, surprising psychology of BDSM is the name of the publication the psychologist Joe Magliano states Compared to the normative samples, BDSM practitioners had lower levels of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychological sadism, psychological masochism, borderline pathology, and paranoia. They did, however, show equal levels of obsessive-compulsive disorder and higher levels of disassociation and narcissism. But in comparison to non-practitioners, BDSM practitioners exhibited higher levels of extroversion, conscientiousness, openness to experience, and subjective well-being. Practitioners that also showed lower levels of neuroticism and rejection sensitivity. The one negative trait that emerged during this study done by Joe Magliano is that BDSM practitioners showed lower levels of agreeableness than non-practitioners so they didn't like agreeing with things as much which you can sort of understand uh, when it comes to when you look at how they were more extroverted you know more conscientious um, and that side of things that they the fact that they don't agree as much as perhaps what some others do makes a little bit of sense now there are six key things that come out of the Medical Daily Journal um, that literally back up um, the benefits of practicing BDSM. I know that comes as a wee bit odd to perhaps some people, but these are backed by science. It improves communication between people, it increases intimacy, encourages fidelity, and I think part of that comes into the poly thing as well. There are more tends to be more poly people in a BDSM community than outside of it, and that, but that's just my perception from where I'm from. It could be completely different where you got where you guys are from. So don't take what I'm saying there as gospel. Um, better mental health is number four. It reduces psychological stress and it reduces anxiety, and that comes back to the science that I've talked about as well in the release of of the endorphins and your adrenaline rushes and things like that gives you a nice big release from everything and I think that's where this sort of comes into play as well 
But it does seem as though psychology believes that BDSM at least provides equal or even potentially exceeding um, benefits than those provided by professional help sometimes. So instead of going into... <laughs> what it, <laughs> it seems like I'm saying don't go and see somebody, just go and get beaten up or, or engage in some sort of kinky buckery. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I would probably actually say do both, <laughs> personally. But... Um, yeah, always still see somebody as well. Uh, that's just what I would say, but yeah. I personally, I, I don't need articles from the, you know, from the psychologist Joe Macliano. I don't need Medical Daily and all of these guys to tell me what I've already learned about the BDSM community. It is, however, nice to have those sorts of things, those sorts of places back me up, for lack of a better term, if I get into an argument with somebody or something, I can literally go, actually, boom, psychologists say this, boom, medical journals say this, boom, boom, boom. And it really, it can shut down those bigots that think that we're just a whole bunch of crazy people. Now, again, for myself, from what I've seen in in my kink scene down here, that it's... And I, and I I say that for a reason. It is my king's and it could be completely different where wherever you're listening from. But from what I've seen, the BDSM community is, for the most part, a group of people have better relationships with each other, so better friendships, better whatever. Not, and that's because not only communication is a mantra for kingsters. There's also a higher level of vulnerability and trust that have been experienced changed than in a normal relationship. Communicating, trust, opening yourself up to vulnerabilities, all of these are things that that facilitate, let's say facilitate, deeper connections between people. Okay? So you're you're as a bottom, if you're the submissive or the bottom in that situation, you're giving away a lot of trust and vulnerability and whatnot to the person that you're playing with. And that goes both ways as well, by the way. The, the top is giving a whole bunch as well, giving their trust to um, to the bottom um, to notice if they're still doing alright. It's not just a one-way thing here, guys. Both parties in any sort of BDSM relationship, whether it just be a play partner, whether it just be whether it be a full on twenty four seven master slave dynamic, who knows? It could be anything, but that's definitely still a two way street. And the reason I go into that is even when you're taking out the BDSM acts and intimate relationships and whatnot that are in in a group in a BDSM community, I personally found the community itself is kind of a really warm and supportive place and it's and it's quite accepting of of new people and whatnot and there's also a bit of a pack mentality as well so that I, I don't mean they'll set upon a new person or anything like that but they'll definitely protect their own kinksters are really really aware that predators and abusers are attracted to kink and bdsm because of the prevalence of ropes and whips and 
especially power exchange as well and all of that sort of stuff so we are quite protective of each other so I guess to sum up the answer to that sort of thing is to answer why people act like it's cool instead of getting professional help because professional help's not always needed BDSM for me is not anything of a, dis of a mental health issue in any way shape or form a lot of people think it might be but I personally don't but yeah why do people act like it's cool because it is some of us are engaged in conventional therapy I, I personally have used a therapist more than once um, I have just this week as well actually and my psychologist is fully aware of my king side and he actually encourages um, that participation as well but we're reaping significant mental and emotional benefits from this so-called paraphilic disorder as quoted in DSM-4 and the other side of it is that we're having a lot of fun while we're doing it people believe you me we have a lot a lot of sexy sexy fun and there will be a lot of people in, in all of this that will sit there and say but how can you think that BDSM is normal how can you think that this is a a natural thing um, how it's just ordinary to be to be spanked hard or to be caned or flogged or you know have electricity coursing through your body or anything like this and the, the thing with that is norm, normality is subjective obviously it's from for somebody who is a heavy kingster um, spanking might be considered normal whereas somebody who's extremely conservative could think the complete other side and think that that's the worst thing you could do to a person or whatever and we say like we can say that nobody is normal everyone's weird everyone's unique and everyone's wonderful in their own sort of way but I argue that I would argue and this is this is me that BDSM is normal without having to play with the definition or understanding of the word normal I believe BDSM is absolutely normal and that those who don't participate in it or have thought about it are either denying themselves of their own nature or they're not normal. I believe this because BDSM in essence pursuits fundamental concepts that are normal and nearly every person has. Okay, Let's take the relationship between a dom and his sub or master and slave and we look at the dynamics of that sub slash slave and it is, in its essence, the pursuit of security, order, simplicity, and peace of mind. Doesn't that sound... Doesn't that sound familiar? Um, <laughs> Jesus. It, it is quite familiar. I think that's what most people in life would want, right? Security? Just a little bit of order? That for life to be simple and to have peace of mind sounds pretty bloody amazing to me guys I'm not gonna lie sounds fantastic to me vanilla people do pursue the same things normally too they go to college and try to get good jobs for security order in their routine simplicity in the dream that they chase 
And you believe it's safe to say, well, I believe it's safe to say that nearly everyone, or, yeah, nearly everyone, I would think, would, be, would want to be a part of this. The southern slave must trust fully, as, as part of this, of course. And without a doubt, they'll likely be hurt in some sort of way. There's a sense of nirvana when you're able to trust somebody that much. The only other situation that I that I've heard of, and this is this is coming from a third party, it's not coming from anyone here. It was um, a friend of mine was telling me about when they were, were a marine in the U.S. and you you trust your fellow marines with your life. And you not, and they knew that without hesitation, they'd sacrifice their life to save yours, and just so that they may live, just as they know that they would sacrifice their body for theirs. For my friend would sacrifice their own body for their colleagues. To be able to trust somebody so much is an absolutely wonderful feeling I think scary at times sure but still absolutely divine moving on to the to the dominant side of it the master is the essence of power control depending on responsibility mentoring a bit of a hero complex and importance it's the pursuit of being the man or woman in charge that is, I'm sure that's easily agreed upon as a pretty normal and common thing to see, being in charge. Whether it be workplace, whether it be at home, whether it be anywhere, really. Who doesn't want to be in charge? I feel as though most people do in some way. Another scene commonly associated with BDSM is the whole ravaging side of it. It's easy... This is, this is where it's easy to see why most people... Uh, think of for it not to be normal, <coughs> which is fine. If they don't understand it and think it's a rape thing, they should find it unappealing and abnormal. The problem with that is that there are a lot of fantasies, and it's even one of the most popular and common fantasies that women have, is a rape fantasy or consensual non-consent is the way that I'd put it. It's it is that way. I think because while men, yeah, it is so because while men or the masculine desire to control, women or the feminine desire to be desired or desirable. I don't like putting it that way. I really don't because it is not down to a woman to to you know change what they're doing to be desired. But I still think that it is it is a nice feeling, even for males as well. I I love to be desired. Or to be desirable. Um, but, yeah. Probably the wrong way to put that, but that's okay. A man losing self-control or tossing away the games, proper gentlemanly side, gives affirmation for the woman that she is beautiful, that she is wanted, and that she is decide, desired. So irresistibly desired, even, that the man has reverted to his feral animal state. Lost are the words that he once knew how to speak. Instead, replaced by grunts. 
I, I'm, I'm a big growler in bed, so this is sort of few, a, a, a poignant one for me. For the masculine here, is being able to take away what we want. I find the pursuit of that very normal. Except normally we'd be hailed so we had money into the equation. The pursuit to be able to buy whatever we want. That kind of sounds normal, doesn't it? Desire to thing. So, yeah. But BDSM all in all is at its core a pursuit of pleasure. Which I'm pretty sure everybody in the world goes after. A pursuit of experiences. A pursuit of knowledge. And certainly not least, a pursuit <coughs> of companionship. Where people can explore without being judged. Where they can try out what they were naturally curious about. It's no different than wine tasting or traveling. And looking back into history, you know they were kinky and taboo. All the royal families were tabooing it up, trying to keep that family bloodline pure. The Roman emperors would probably look at my kinkiness and think, vanilla. Now what about the women in ancient Egypt, which used crocodile poop as a contraceptive by smearing, smearing it uh, in their foo-foos? BDSM is not abnormal. It is normal. You could even argue it's a return to normalcy. But that is my opinion on this. Different people will have absolutely different thoughts on this. And that's okay. I don't claim to be 100% correct. I am, I do not have a PhD in anything like this. This is, I do a lot of this through my own thoughts and my own research. And then write down a lot. <laughs> and then regurgitate what I've written down. But that's my thoughts around that as well, guys. So, as I've already touched on quite a bit, there's a lot of myths and a lot of science involved with BDSM and kink and all of this fun, lovely stuff that we like to do. I'm going to talk about a, some, some more myths and some more science to, to continue on from this as well. But it's going to begin with... Again, with what society believes, I'm going to go a wee bit more in depth on that now. Uh, I've touched on it briefly, but the public perception, really, of BDSM and people who practice BDSM isn't a positive one. I've already touched on that. The, the common perception currently is that we're damaged people. We're damaged goods. We're damaged in whatever way. And it was long assumed that BDSM practitioners had been victims of past traumatic experiences or failures in developments. And that's sort of what has resulted in their sexual identity now. And that's linked to another common misconception that 
people who practice BDSM are mentally ill. There's a long history of psychologists that attempt to explain BDSM sexual activity through the lens of mental illness, uh, including arguably one of the most famous ones, Sigmund Freud, who argued that masochists were often people who were abused during childhood, and are now attempting to gain mastery of this trauma by replacing it in a controlled environment. So you're beaten as a kid, you're going to beat people as an adult. Yada, yada, yada. The misrepresentation of BDSM practitioners is pervasive enough in our culture that the APA, the American Psychological Association, these are the guys who put together the, the DSM. <laughs> and, the, and the DSM-4 like I touched on before and they are the ones who labelled it as mental disorder it has been noted now like I've, like I've touched upon briefly again according to the DSM-5, the newer version a BDSM practitioner can only be diagnosed with a paraphilic disorder if it causes the client or patient distress or if it causes the client or patient to engage in sexual conduct without a partner's consent so it's not a disorder if you're enjoying it, which I would hope that most of you are. This perception of BDSM does have a tangible effect on the stress a, a practitioner of BDSM encounters. One qualitative study revealed that all of 20 participants were aware of stigma related to their sexual identity as a BDSM practitioner. These participants were also uh, these participants also revealed that many were subject to stigma from sexual partners. Some stated that their partners were appalled by the idea, with at least one participant's partner came, claiming that kink play was oppositional to a loving relationship. Many of these participants reported that the public stigmatic perception of BDSM practitioners and the potential or actualized stigma faced from partners led to anxiety being felt towards the disclosure of their sexual identities to partners or other significant persons. Who the hell would want to tell people about this sort of stuff if they were getting negative reaction after negative reaction after negative reaction and being told that you're weird or creepy or you know whatever it may be Nobody wants to hear that over and over and over again. And that, in short, that, that, that stigma, that yuckiness, that, you know, whatever you want to call it, that leads to an increased difficulty in being open about the participant's identity as somebody who engages in BDSM. Another perception of people who are involved with kink is that they're violent individuals engaging in abusive sexual practices. This is quite common, a lot, com a lot more common than people think. But it's also really damaging to people who practice BDSM as well. And it has actually led to overt discrimination against the BDSM community as a whole. One literature review notes that data from several studies by the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom 
which suggests that many BDSM practitioners face discrimination at their place of employment, as well as overt harassment and violence. I don't think that's as as popular as it seems, but I do think that it can happen if, especially in, in a more conservative sort of workplace, I feel as though it's one of those things that could happen at... I think it would probably happen more in America than it would here in New Zealand. We're quite an open people, I guess. And I kind of like that. It is worth noting, however, the observations of Margot Device, who in 2006 noted that in the past 20 years, BDSM depictions in popular culture have become more prevalent. So it's becoming more accepted, really. What was once nearly non-existent in the public consciousness is now talked about openly in TV ads, TV programs, and film, print, and let's not even get started on the internet. It's all over the place on the net. As a result, the shock value which used to be associated with BDSM practices has been diminished to an extent. However, this is not synonymous with the diminishing of negative public perceptions of BDSM practitioners nor the discrimination these people often face. Weiss notes that the increase in presentations of BDSM in public media do not improve the acceptance of those who practice it by the sexual normative community or as I was talking about earlier I would call them the, <laughs> the sexual abnormative community since these depictions often are presented in ways which reinforce the diversions between the two communities rather than challenging the privilege of sexual normal individuals. Indeed, it's possible that this depiction of practitioners and individuals with other alternative sexual identities as alien and other is likely to cause is likely the source of st such stigma. So it's it's kind of interesting that <clears throat> it's more of the depiction of of people that is the source of the stigma as opposed to what what actually happens. And those involved with kink would most definitely uh, probably agree with that. I most certainly do. Now, despite the societal notions of BDSM practitioners as mentally ill or damaged or whatever way you want to put it there is a whole heap a whole pile of literature on the mental health of such people that discredits this Connolly in 2006 De Visser and Grulich et al 2008 Bernarsson and Wiesmeyer in 2016 plus so many more like um like um Tanya Glide, uh, Carolyn Mecker is another one, Scott McGreal, there's been so, so many, Keely Combs, Wendy Stock, Charles Moser. So there's, there, there's been a lot of um, studies that completely discredit um, the, the, the fact that people who are into BDSM or practice it are obviously not mentally ill or damaged. The most recent research on the mental health of BDSM practitioners suggests that not only are BDSM practitioners not more likely than the general population to be less psychologically healthy, 
And, and we spoke about this a little bit before as well, but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth on it as well. They're more likely to have better overall psychological health than the general population. For this, research participants from the Netherlands were administered several psychometric instruments, including the Neo 5-factor inventory, the attachment styles questionnaire, rejection sensitivity questionnaire, and the World Health Organization 5 Wellbeing, uh, 5 Wellbeing Index. So this is just a whole bunch of studies they put on people to see how, basically how they're doing. Like, how you going, pal? Good, sweet, that's fun. The researchers compared BDSM practitioners to non-BDSM practitioners and also compared mental health outcomes for dominant, submissive and switch practitioners. What the researchers found was that in general, BDSM practitioners were better in mental health than non, and they scored better on measures of subject well-being, rejection sensitivity, all that stuff we talked about earlier. And something we didn't talk about is found to be less neurotic as well. So again, the results seem to suggest that BDSM practitioners generally score better on mental health and the dominant roles scoring better than those who are switch or submissive, which is something we didn't touch on earlier either. As mentioned earlier, there's a public assertion of people who are kinky as being mentally ill. However, a research study by Susan Connolly, 2006, empirically tested this hypothesis. 132 practitioners completed a battery of psychometric instruments designed to assess mental health. Demographic information was collected as well. Psychometric instruments the participants were assessed on included the MMPI-2, the Trauma Symptom Inventory, the Post Traumatic Stress Disorder Scale, the multi-scale disassociation inventory and the Beck depression and anxiety inventories. A lot of tests here. What Connolly had found in 2006 was that for measures of depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsion or PTSD and related symptoms, the vast majority of participants fell below clinically significant scores. Overall, the sample was not abnormally high in these measures. The results did vary depending on the psychometric instrument being used. Interestingly, as part of that, the results showed mixed findings for measures of psychological sadism and relatively low scores on psychological masochism. So there's a big difference between psychological sadism and psychological masochism and just your regular, <laughs> your regular run-of-the-mill sadomasochism. The only scores shown to be relatively high compared to population means were on narcissism, borderline pathology, and paranoia. However, even for those three personalities, personality features, the vast majority of participants' scores did not reach clinical significance. I'm, I'm not surprised about the narcissism one on that. Especially when you think of how a lot of people recently got into kink, which is your your Fifty Shades of Grey, your, your erotic novels and whatnot now, that people are reading more and more, it seems. But 
Yeah, it shows that we're just regular people who like a little bit more fun, for the most part on that. There was another more, expan more expensive study in Australia, or Australia. Re <laughs> researchers contacted, contacted people over the telephone using computer-assisted random digit dialings to interview participants about their sexual behaviours and collect demographic information about them. That that can't be an easy way of being a call centre person, calling people up and asking them about their sex life. Dear oh dear. Anyway, what the researchers had found was that of the participants who had engaged in BDSM sexual activity in the past year, male practitioners were less likely to suffer psychological distress than those who didn't practice. And females did not differ from the general population. Furthermore, BDSM practitioners were found to be more likely to have been coerced into sex at some point in their past. And that's a little bit significant because it counters the notion that practitioners had been damaged by a traumatic past sexual experience. The only outstanding finding in the study in regards to BDSM is that they were more likely to have a more diverse sex life in terms of their activities they engaged in during the past year. What a shock! What an absolute shock that that might, uh, might be is that they have a more diverse sex life. Now all of these studies that we've talked about are mostly homogenous in their findings and largely, corro largely corroborated um, each other, really. This is significant for two reasons. One, it reduced the chance of, well, that the findings of any one study being due to selection bias or researcher bias or random chance. Two, because these studies had been done on different times and locations, with one study being in the Netherlands, another in Australia, it reduces the chances that there was a selection bias where the specific sample being studied was psychological, psychologically healthier than the general population of practitioners. However, this is not the basis of a cross-cultural statement on the mental health of BDSM practitioners since all of these countries are Western, Euro-American cultures and thus have many similarities. It would be interesting to see what it would be like in somewhere like India or Africa where women's rights are a little bit less than what they are in Western countries. Although the literature makes it clear, BDSM sexual activity itself is not linked to any increased risk in psychological distress, there are some areas of concern for the well-being of practitioners. First and foremost, interviews from practitioners make it clear that there is a dearth of sexual education available for people interested in engaging in such activity. This is somewhat problematic because even though BDSM activity in and of itself may not lead to psychological distress, unintended harm could arise from such practices due to a lack of education on the subject. This is why we need more and more of that. That's why I like talking about it. God damn. Uh, this could come in the form of physical harm, psychological distress or both. It is evident that sexual education which is inclusive of BDSM practices as well as other alternative sexual practices, would be beneficial for people. Another area of concern arising from these interviews 
is that the social stigma attached to their identity could result in psychological distress as well. We talked a little bit about that as we were going through. One finding from Connolly's study, 2006, remember, which was particularly interesting was that practitioners were found to have higher levels of paranoia than the population mean. This can be partially explained by the social stigma faced by faced by kinksters by the, of the general public. As shown in previous literature, there's a history of harassment and, in some cases, violence against kinksters and being open or potentially becoming open about this aspect of one's sexual identity can elicit high levels of anxiety to the level of paranoia. And, and that may have contributed in the scores the participants had on measures of paranoia and anxiety in this study. This can be built upon by empirically testing if having alternative sexual identity as well as anxiety related to being open about this identity is correlated with anxiety or other psychological problems. So that would be really quite interesting to, to sort of go into as well. The major conclusion of all of this, or oh, too long didn't read, if you want, TLDR, is that gangsters are no more likely than the general population to have mental illness, to suffer psychological distress, or to have suffered a sexual trauma in the past. The negative perception of kinksters in the popular media is likely a myth created due to lack of understanding for people who identify as a BDSM practitioner or as a kinkster. So there you go, peeps. We're all, we're all normal. Yay. Yay for us, normal people. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to move a little bit more into a, a sort of psychotherapy angle here now. And that should sort of finish it all off for us. Um, so, and, and it's sort of done in a, in a wee bit of a story essay sort of format. So, I, I do paraphrase everything that I say. It's not straight from the page or anything like that. But I'll try and say it as similarly as I can to the original so as to not take away. So you get a client. He goes to see a new therapist about his anxiety. A few session in, a few sessions in, the trust levels build. They get to know each other a little bit better. And he tentatively tells her about a significant aspect of his private sexual life. That is Kingster. No, yeah, about his private sexual life. To his horror, she immediately stops the therapy and says they cannot continue until she has uprooted and cured this terrible pathology. Now this little story wouldn't be out of place about a gay man on an analyst couch in the 1950s. The problem is it's not. This is the experience and more to the point the anticipated experience of a number of people who practice BDSM or bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism. While so-called gay conversion therapy is in the process of being ethically and hopefully legally forbidden, I think it is now in a lot of places, there are no such protections for people who fall into the broad category that might be defined as kinky. Change, however, may be on the horizon, but it's not coming quickly enough. 
the publication, and I hate talking about this book because it's such an inaccurate representation, the publication of Fifty Shades of Grey in 2011 started an earthquake in British culture. The tremors were quiet at first, occurring mainly on features pages. Commentators had, commentators had a good snigger at author E.L. James's prose style, and then they wrote about her sales. Fifty Shades is one of the best-selling books ever. The film, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, was released on Valentine's Day 2015. And after decades giggling about fluffy handcuffs, sex dungeons, and busty Miss Whiplashes, something appeared in British society that seemed to bridge the gap between the simple human need to deepen personal pleasure and connection and the apparently sinister and dangerous BDSM lifestyle, enjoyed by unsmiling people wearing black leather. Over the years, BDSM culture has periodically found itself in the limelight, but to many it has remained the province of a tiny minority who are almost never seen, except when they popped up on late night TV. Except of course, none of this is accurate at all, is it? I'm well aware that many more people are kinky than ever reveal it, or whoever go to a BDSM club or party. The kink community is only the public face of a collection of orientations and lifestyles that stretches far further into society than the media and most researchers ever bothered to explore. But there has been a huge barrier to public understanding in the form of mental health establishment whose long-time dogma was that nobody knew what to do with BDSM, apart from try to cure it. And until DSM-5, which was 2013, kinky people could be safely written off as suffering from a paraphilia, given that sadism, masochism and fetishism were listed there, and as such might be regarded as inherently disordered. People who enjoyed kink were the stuff of case studies, psychologically damaged and likely to damage others. Dominance was sadistic sociopaths, and submissives helplessly acting out past abuse. Now at least, behaviour and pathology have been separated, which is a step in the right direction. To be diagnosed under a paraphilic disorder in, under DSM-5, we spoke about this just before, it has to cause harm or distress to yourself or others, and there is a recognition that many people are quite comfortable with their consensual practices. This is why we have negotiations, among other things, before we engage in our activities as kinksters. Unfortunately, though, in many countries, the law does not hold the same opinion, and practitioners of BDSM remain in some danger from prosecution, as well as societal shaming. I'm going to talk about the prosecution bit for a moment. Because what I I'm, I use a lot of impact play, which is you know spanking, hitting, use of use of uh, use of whips, canes, all of that sort of stuff. That using using all of that on another human is considered assault, and you can't consent to assault where I'm from, and I'm pretty certain you can't do it in. America either, but whereas you do have the choice to lay charges or not. New Zealand, you don't always get that choice. 
So if you get caught, you can get caught quite badly when it comes to that. So there's there's always that danger of prosecution there as well. But the word outing sounds almost passe, but unfortunately for this group, it is very much still current. Some people do not want to be outed in this. I'm very, very open about what I do. But there's a lot of people who can't due to their standing in their community, among other different things. It is somewhat paradoxical that ongoing prejudice notwithstanding, people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual or trans currently have more legal protection than a heterosexual person who happens to be kinky or even polyamorous. Once someone publicly added as kinky could have their children taken away and lose their job, and that fear legitimately remains. It seems increasingly incongruous that in the UK, despite the extensive legally sanctioned injuries sustained by boxers and other sports people, a person practicing BDSM is still not legally able to give or consent to receiving marks on their body that are more than what the law defines as transient and trifling, even in writing with witnesses. The key issue here, which so many in the mainstream seem to seem unable to get grips with, is consent. One therapy trainer I heard of had a problem with BDSM because they had worked with abused women. But consensual BDSM is not abuse, precisely because it is consensual. It's sort of there in the title. This is not taught on psychotherapy courses. Well, at least none that I know of anyway. Because awareness of gender and sexual diversities is barely taught at all. And in some branches of psychotherapy, the further a person departs from the from being heterosexual, monogamous, vanilla, and cisgender, the more disordered and perverse they are labelled by default. The law and media still talk about people as if they are children who need protecting from themselves. And these attitudes can extend into the therapy room, and this is where it gets concerning. This is why so many kinksters and even polyamorous people are very, very choosy and very, very careful about where they go for their therapies. Because there can be so much coming from the other side of the table that it just becomes so, so difficult to talk about anything from that point. In BDSM, though, negotiation must happen, both in terms of personal boundaries asking for what you want because there could be damage done if not. This level of interpersonal communication is taboo in our culture of unspoken acceptance of the status quo. So asserting consent is actually a radical act. I often wonder what society would look like if girls in particular were taught their true rights in terms of consent at home and school. Consenting to and asking for Pleasure takes things a step further, and I suspect this might be why there's a little bit of disapproval and a little bit of fear. The question could be asked whether BDSM is an orientation, is it a lifestyle, is it both? Some people are wired to be dominant or submissive from birth, some discover a love of it when young, and some get into it later in life. 
This could be because they discover that it enhances their sex life, or because conventional genital sex doesn't work for them. And they're looking for other ways to deepen physical and mental connection. People have told me a number of times that they have experienced a personal renaissance when exploring BDSM through learning new skills and finding new friends. Many report profound, life-changing, therapeutic and even spiritual experiences. Others simply find it to be a lot of fun. I think I fit in both of those. And the prejudice is also curious because power exchange and extreme sensation are ever-present in religion throughout history. Whether resulting from self-deprivation, self-flagellation, or full-on martyrdom, religious, religious ecstasy is trans, transcendent and intoxicating, without any need for drugs. Allowing yourself to be controlled by a high power and its representatives, or enacting the control yourself, is a major part of this too. In fact, the quality of mental health among BDSM practitioners doesn't vary far from the, that of the general population. We've already talked about all of that. But the question comes down to after all of that, does abuse happen in BDSM? Yeah, of course it does. It's not a utopia. It's not heaven. It's not anything like that. There are still bad people who get involved with it, unfortunately. It is useful to point out that many people enact non-consensual sadomasochistic scenarios with neither special clothing or, or implements in so-called normal relationships uh, that are happily sanctioned by society every day of their lives. Many people in ordinary life do not externally negotiate their relationships at all, nor understand or value their own boundaries and limits. The scary part of that is entire marriages are sustained on that inauthenticity. It is easy to volunteer for suffering simply by going along with societal norms without asking yourself, are these right for me? Now with the growth of the internet, the BDSM lifestyle has opened up irrevocably. The older, strictly essentialist, one true way in inverted, inverted quotation marks, being either dominant or submissive, preferably from birth, with those that switch between them seen as suspect, is giving way to a more fluid interpretation of roles as younger people enter the scene. One long-time scene girl told me about how 30 years ago you wrote to a PO box number and drove miles to a party where you might not know anyone. Now, there are global contact websites such as FetLife and a very large number of events. The increasingly popular cosplay lifestyle, meanwhile, helps to normalize the roleplay and the fantasy side of things. And so with that, I come back to Fifty Shades and its portrayal of what is increasingly enjoyed as a hobby, albeit with the shadow of societal disapproval still attached to it. While the book has aroused many people, especially women, and encouraged a lot of experimentation, it is genuinely hugely problematic and a terrible representation of BDSM. The book might have pulled back the curtain on Master's Eye, but its portrayal of its consent is appalling. Grey is a sociopathic stalker 
and a bully, whose preferences apparently developed out of sexual abuse. A persistent and tiresome cliché. Anyway, the true fetish in Fifty Shades is capitalism, anyway. Grey is a rescuing prince of sort, taking Anastasia away from her workaday life and into a rarefied existence, buoyed up entirely on seemingly infinite funds. I cannot really blame the reader for fantasizing about this. The trailer feels quite 1980s in its worship of the corporate world. But I suspect no, there was a lot of people who went in and saw it. And it should have been a pioneering window into a much understood subculture. But it wasn't. In the therapy room, the kinky client might be seeking help for reasons that have nothing to do with BDSM. They just need to know that their therapist isn't going to pathologize or reject them. The therapist does not have to be totally fine with every practice their client describes, but they do need to do their own research and not use their client as a learning zone. Practitioners of BDSM deserve the same respect that any client should get from their therapist. But if they feel stigmatized by their therapist, or for that matter, their doctor, they're in a difficult position as to who to complain to. Bearing in mind the rules on risk reporting, an especially prejudiced or simply inexperienced therapist could at worst report a client for taking part in what was, in fact, a consensual activity. In a bid to rescue them and cover themselves, after being potentially traumatized by such an experience, the client will also need to locate a more knowledgeable therapist and start again. Not an easy thing to do. When society accepts the sexual self-actualization of minorities as well as the majority, change might happen. Right now, therapists who reject or pathologize people from the BDSM lifestyle are losing an opportunity to learn, but more importantly, they are potentially endangering the mental health of their clients and patients. Now, there's a chance to change things. The reason I wanted to touch on, on all of this, it's from a, a psychotherapist's um, point of view, okay? So it seems as though, and, and, and we all know it, there are some people out there that are just going to shut down the idea of talking to somebody who is in the lifestyle that we're in. And especially when it comes to to therapists, I think in, in New Zealand especially, we're quite open about all of that side of things. Um, and I found one who was open to it and learned a lot about it as we were going along along the way. Not from me, but they went and did their own research so they could correlate what was going on in that, in that sense of thing, in that sense of, of life, um, which was really, really cool. And if you are going to see a therapist and... You're probably at some point going to bring up your kink lifestyle. It's something that is quite common. I would suggest bringing it up quickly and ensure that they're comfortable with it. Okay? Because it's, it's going to play a part. And if you go through all of the steps initially, like, like I said in this article, if you go all through the steps initially and then you get to a point and you mention something about your kink lifestyle later on, 
you have to start all over again and finding the right person all over again and um, yeah that can be not overly fun <laughs> but um, yeah I hope you've all learned a lot today I learned a lot while I was researching a lot of this especially the fact that I thought uh, people who are involved with kink were more not susceptible to mental illness but used used kink as a lot as more of a way to get away from mental illness and I still think that there is a large majority of people who like to do that and they use it to clear their heads and that's fucking wonderful but I thought yeah and I'm really sort of happy to be proved otherwise it's really really cool that kinksters tend to be a lot more balanced and a lot more well thought through and kind of amazing but anyway I'm going to end that here I've been here for over an hour now thank you so much uh, for listening into this uh, yet another long episode where it's just been me um, I really hope you do enjoy it it has been super interesting for me and hopefully I'll be able to get back on my week on my weekly schedule and yes I did just have a hiccup but um, thank you everyone once again for listening to the ASLAP podcast this week and don't forget to stay slutty